Welcome to the OmniWin Project podcast, where we are accelerating the co-creation of the future of our democracy. My name is Duncan Autry, and I am a conflict transformation catalyst. I'm the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I'm your host. The goal of this project is to facilitate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and our political culture, so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. What that means is that if you're tired of our polarized and divisive political culture, or if you're worried about the impact of today's decisions on future generations, well, then you're in the right place. I believe that the world is ready for change, and I know that we have answers to most of the problems that we're facing. In this podcast, I'm going to be sharing them with you. I'm in this for the long haul, and I hope that you'll join me. So come on over to the OmniWinProject.com where you can get more information, media, resources, and inspiration. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the OmniWin Project podcast. Welcome to the OmniWin Project. The guest on today's show is Jordan Hall. Jordan is a person who is endeavoring to support the emergence of a possible, maybe plausible, but definitely necessary transition in the culture of humanity. This effort is something that he cultivates in himself, in his relationships, and in the world around him. Jordan is a big thinker, and he speaks with incredible care and precision. And I invited Jordan to the show in part because he's one of the originators of the concept of Game B. Game B is a lens for understanding that we need to change the rules that guide our global culture. And because the rules that we're following right now, the rules of Game A, they are already leading us to catastrophe. I find this Game B approach and community fascinating and inspiring, so I'll make sure there's some links for you in the episode notes and on the episode page. In this conversation, Jordan and I talk about the metacrisis and the nature of wicked problems, and we talk about the possibility and necessity of innovating and developing better approaches to deal with them. We talk about the importance of forgiving others and forgiving ourselves. And we talk about how it's not necessarily our job to take on the responsibility of the world, but that as individuals, we are part of the whole. And so it is up to us to make small changes where we can, and that matters. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. This episode was recorded in June of 2022. And now here's my conversation with Jordan Hall. Well, Jordan, thank you for being on the OmniWin Project podcast. And I am really excited to talk to you because I've been listening over the years to your efforts to help talk about how our civilization and our society is going through a transition and or needs to go through a transition. And I appreciate the way you've been framing it and the way that you've been talking about it. And in this project, I've been connecting various people who are coming from like different fields. People have very practical skills, people who are working on the individual stuff, people are trying to do some of that systems change. And I'm talking a lot and I'm also talking to philosophers and thinkers and people who are kind of really looking at the big picture. And I think some of that is like a really important for us to think about how to move forward. And so that's why I'm here. And I want to know if I could just get you to start by just explaining a little bit about kind of what you 
wish people knew or wish people were paying attention to regarding like some of the things that you're interested in? Okay. Well, I'll just combine those two and say that I wish people knew how critical it was to pay attention to the things they care about most. The things that they care about the most. This reminds me a little bit of like Jeremy Lent talking about meaning and so forth. But um, it's like uh, part of what I hear you saying is like, what actually is meaningful to you? And that actually is important for you to pay attention to. Why? <laughs> like a whole bunch of things are implicated in that. You know, one yeah. aspect is something like, I'd say my friend, my friend Joe Edelman has put a lot of work into digging deeply into the degree to which we don't notice or seem to actually properly mm, excavate in ourselves what we actually care about, which is to say our own values. And so one aspect of that is just to, what would it look like to take the time and the care to become clear in what your values are? Okay, and then second would be something like noticing that we cannot help but kind of spend our time on and our energy and our choices and our focus on the things that we attend to. So to the degree to which we're attending to things that are not the things we actually find to be most meaningful, the things that are most um, relevant in the context of our values, at the very least, we're distracted. And in fact, quite often, we, we find ourselves getting in our own way. So there's something along the lines of like the, the image I have is, let's see, it's like when you're driving and you, you, you maybe somebody at some point in your, in your life mentioned like, don't stare at the wall because if you're looking at the wall, you'll drive towards the wall. You have to actually kind of notice it in your peripheral vision, but, but actually focus your attention in the place you want to be. Something like that might be a nice heuristic. So first, become capable of having some capacity to orient yourself towards what you think you actually want. And then begin to cultivate the practices in your life that are likely to lead towards your getting to the things that you want. And that would be a very simple piece. This is much, much more, of course, but in the context of uh, that question, that's what popped up first. Thank you. I appreciate the precision of this. And one of the things that comes up for me a lot working in the field of conflict transformation is there's always this tension between people actually speaking up for what, what they want and figuring out how to be in a relationship and being with other folks. But it has to start with people what you want. And one of the things that can go really sideways is people not being clear about what direction they're trying to go or not recognizing the value of bringing their voice into the room. But I'm going to take us down this plane with your metaphor here of what are we paying attention to or what are we driving towards? that's where we're going to end up going. One of the things that I've heard you break down in the, in the concept of like game B is that in a certain way, our society and our culture and as individuals, we're following a set of rules and we're paying attention to certain things and therefore we're going that way. And what you've pointed out is that there's actually other ways we can be going than that. And that if we had different rules or different parameters or set our compass point differently, that we would start, we would go somewhere different. And so I was wondering if you would unpack a little bit of kind of like, where do you see us going and, and you know, that whole concept of what other directions we might need to be going with? 
Sure. Let me, if you don't mind, let me maybe put a couple of different kinds of frames into the conversation because I, I noticed that quite often there's a, a challenge that when a certain frame is orient is, is identified, oftentimes there's a feeling that other frames are being excluded. And I want to make sure that that's not the case. What no. we're doing is, is by definition, the whole everything, all of reality and all of possibility. And by definition, anything that's real is part of the story. Right. So in, the, in, the, in the scarce attention that we have, we are obligated to foreground some aspect of that whole. It's important to notice that that's what we're doing, but not endeavoring to say that piece is the whole, right? And this by itself is already a koan of kind of the essence of the point I'm trying to make. So, so one aspect would be something like, maybe we call it structural, something happening in the socio-institutional habits and frameworks that in many ways we find ourselves immersed in. Quite often we had nothing to do with, but nonetheless has a lot to do with us. And frankly, it's kind of the cybernetic enhancement of our, of our sort of basic human capacity. For example, like very simply, as a basic human, I need to eat. And quite often, actually, maybe not as much as we currently do, but certainly more, more often than zero. And for me to meet that need these days, I have to actually mediate my capacity through an entire field of institutional structures like grocery stores and money that I have very little to do with. Okay, so that's, that's that piece, right? There's a piece there that we need to talk about and notice how those particular kinds of things have implications for the way that we show up in life, the way we live our lives, the way our relationships show up uh, and how we impact the world around us. Right? So that's a piece, it's a big piece, very important. And also not the whole story. Uh, then we could talk about something like the, the various sort of assumptions and habits of mind that I have the frameworks that either have been coded deeply into me, which some people might call malware, or that I myself have adopted, sometimes quite effectively and sometimes not particularly as effectively as perhaps I'd like them to be. And how those also shape the way that I show up. We have things like trauma and the way that I actually hold trauma and then also the way that I respond to the trauma that I hold and how that navigates my capacity to show up in relationship. And by the way, in relationship to the previous systemic point, then we have something like, let's call it just reality, that there are things that are really possible and there are things that are not really possible. And it's useful to know there's a distinction. I'll give you an example. This is an extremely banal example, but it's what popped into my head because it irked me. <laughs> um, I found myself watching a movie. Uh, and I don't watch movies very much anymore, but there's a reason that seemed to be a thing to watch. Uh, and it, it was Kismet that made it possible. The place I was at was, there's only one movie theater within like seven hour drive and it didn't seem likely to have the movie, and yet it was there, so I went. It's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, I believe. And there's some, a lot of good there, a lot of good. Mm -hmm. But there was one thing that irked me tremendously, and it's very idiosyncratic, which was one of the characteristics was that there was a world in that particular story where human beings had evolved to have fingers that were effectively sausages. And here's the trouble. That's actually not possible. There are no universes where that can happen. And it's important. Right? Just because we can imagine it doesn't mean it's actually part of the of real possibility. It's kind of interesting. And this says, okay, there are actually constraints in what we can and can't do. And it's important to notice those constraints and in some sense, very empowering, because then that allows us to simplify the choices we're making as best as possible in alignment with what those constraints of reality happen to be. That's another aspect, right? another characteristic of what we're talking about. So 
you know, the framing that, that I brought up in the context of language game A and game B, which was, I think, how we actually ended up becoming aware of me, tries to think about those kinds of things, right? So the notion of game B is saying, hey, in, in the context of what's really possible, what might it look like for us to endeavor to collaborate together, noticing how we're limited by our own frames and traumas and habits, and noticing how we're struggling against a structural external set of institutional forces that have profound implications for everything. So we need to change those. But we also need to change this in ways that are real, both in terms of our capacity to change and in terms of the destination we might get to. And in order to be able to do those sorts of things, we're going to have to collectively heal, heal ourselves and heal our relationships. And so that's sort of the a meta frame. So you've got four different elements there. I suppose maybe now what I'll do is I'll lob the ping pong ball back into your court. But would you, what feels like the right thing to focus on? Yeah. One of the things that, I mean, I appreciate, first of all, you just naming of like, you know, foreground and background and just like, what are we focusing on? What are we not? And also this distinction about what's possible, what's not possible. I mean, it's a funny example that you're giving, but we live in a universe of infinite possibilities, but it doesn't mean that everything is possible. There's a finite amount of options and sausage fingers are not one of them. But I'm going to actually pick up on your thread about collaboration. And I've heard you talk about Game B, I, I think, in like some Jim Red interview like years ago. But the, you know, it's like, how do we create like a hyper collaborative world? I mean, like, how do we really get collaborative? And And it seems like we're not a lot of the people I hear talking about this don't seem to be aware that we have a lot of collaborative tools, but yet that still runs up against the frame of like what's actually possible and what's not possible. And I'm in an agreement about this idea that that healing is kind of one of these core things that is going to have to somehow be part of the package. So I guess I just want to hear your thinking about what's possible and not possible around collaboration. I mean, what are you seeing around our society as we're trying to figure out how to collaborate? Well, maybe the first thing I would, I would put out there is something like when, <laughs> timing. Timing is very relevant. The Hawaiian would say something like, in the, in the term pono includes the notion of order of operations or sequence. Right? So I can say, it is, it is certainly uh, possible that a woman can give birth to a child. However, in order for that to happen, first she has to be pregnant. So we, we notice that there's, there's constraints on possibility having to do with things like sequence and, and you know, causal relationships over time, things like that. So it's important to say, okay, where, where are we now? And what's possible right now? Okay, nice, that's the thing we can talk about. What are the adjacent possibilities? What are the, what are the paths? And then we can have a sense of what John Verveke has called for me the, uh, the imaginal as distinct from the imaginary, which is how far can we extend that adjacency in practicality? So this is an example. I am only ever so moderately skillful in carpentry and plumbing. I have some skill, but not much, which means that my capacity to really imagine in the imaginal space articulate a possibility. Let's say I want to do plumbing for a house. 
that's actually imaginary. It's bullshit. I'm making it up. I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to fuck it up a big way. I can imagine, I can, in the imaginal space, there's a certain possibility. Now, I also have a very long life history of, of a certain level of competence. So if I accept the fact that I can learn while I'm doing, and it may fuck it up a lot, but eventually I'll get there. Yes, that's possible. Right? Getting there cleanly and smoothly under budget on time, mm, definitely not possible. Okay, nice. This gives us a shaping of how these things work. If you can pick any metaphor you want, plumbing came up for me, carpentry initially. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a piece, piece of the answer is to say, okay, we need to think about things like sequence. And... All right. Constraints, humans. Here's what I would say. Ordinary humans, homo sapiens, are extraordinarily capable at collaboration. I would say three orders of magnitude more than is commonplace among contemporary civilized humans. And I mean that, I'm using that term both as a particular term and also as a sort of pejorative. And there's a whole lot of reasons why that is. And it may, by the way, be much larger than three orders of magnitude. That's a lot, by the way. That's a huge amount, particularly because it has a high exponent in combinations. You know, two people collaborating a thousand X, three people collaborating is, is more, right? It, it, it's, it's that whole synergy thing. So the, the, the what we'll call the practical possibility or the imaginal possibility of, of what could be were we to restore or regenerate our native capacity for collaboration is very large, quite significant. And I can give lots of historical examples of circumstances where small increases, small recoveries of collaborative capacity have developed enormous shifts in what has actually occurred. So now I'm bringing up two different things. One has to do with what's in the way and how do we find ourselves in this circumstance? And what does it mean for us to unwind? I'll be the term of art is actually unfuck that entire thing. And then the other is what is this sort of native capacity and what does it look like to sort of bring that back to regenerate that? Um, and then maybe the third would be something like, okay, what else is there that isn't just pure natural homo sapiens that we do really need to be thinking about in terms of really hitting the note? I would say trivially, that if we were able to achieve something like a couple hundred thousand people collaborating at an ordinary human level in the contemporary environment will be more than enough actual applied capacity to resolve the complete set of hyper objects facing humanity at the moment, and would almost certainly get us out to being a full earth species. And I mean, I can just define what I mean by that and quite plausibly full soul or the solar system species. Okay, so that's a, that's a statement. Great. This is, I'm loving where this is going. So let's kind of take them like a little bit like one, two, three. So first I'd love for you to unpack this like possibility space, you know, like in your ideal world, like where would you like to see us going? And this idea of like this whole, whole earth, I want to hear more about this whole earth species and and then we can talk a bit about some of the challenges, like what are the obstacles to this right now? And then I think the third point you met, you talked about was like some, you know, adjacent possibilities or trajectories to get there. And before you talk about the possibility, I'm going to try to frame up my understanding of the meta crisis, just in a quick sentence here, that I understand that 
part of what we see is the problem of the game A culture. It is one that it is um, rivalrous, has rivalrous dynamics, so people are competing with each other. Competing has a destructive capacity for consuming the planet, which is increasingly happening. And we have increasing technology, so we're getting better and better and better at competing by eating up the planet. So this is kind of like our problem space. And so I heard you framing this like, yeah, if we can get like 100,000 people into a coherent collaborative conversation, we'd be moving things a lot. So that's like a North Star of sorts, sort of an anti-rivalry future. Tell me more about what that future looks like. Well, to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time engaging in that kind of speculation. My sense would be, I focus on my efforts on something like, could we get to 300? Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, it's really not my responsibility. It's the responsibility of whatever that 300 is and what happens after that. It will be really nice. I can tell you that. It's not, it's you know, the kind of things that uh, we, can bring, we can bring back all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. It will have a, a beautifully interesting thing. People will begin to have a lot of clarity on what their values are. They will have a real capacity in themselves and real support in their context to live their lives in accordance with their values. We will discover that we can all do that. that that's not a con- there's no conflict intrinsic in our living our lives according to our values at all. Uh, there are conflicts intrinsic in, in the, the means that we choose to do so. Yeah. That requires that we be careful and thoughtful about how we solve particular kinds of problems. And that there is nothing intrinsic about humanity's relationship with the natural world. In fact, that it be destructive or extractive, and quite the opposite. Humanity and technology can perfectly support and hold a kind of a lived wholeness with the natural world and thereby be fully supported by the natural world. So these are all sort of propositions that I will make as true. And as all of these are simultaneously necessary for us to make it through anything like in good working order in the next century, and all of these are within the zone of what could occur if we were to achieve something like a uh, hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand people in a coherent collaboration, then I would propose that they are quite likely to be characteristics of that sort of future. It seems very likely. What that looks like physically, very hard to imagine actually, because many of the imaginations that we have have been uh, coded into us that aren't really in alignment with a true wholesome future. There will be kids will be healthy and loved and have access to the things they need to discover what they're supposed to be doing in the world. And old people will pass away deeply and feeling extraordinary about the meaningfulness of the brief period of time that they had on earth. Most of life will simply be beautiful and relatively simple. And I don't mean that even the least bit utopian. It can be beautiful and relatively simple. That's not, not a hard thing to accomplish. Most of it is about getting us unfucked, not about doing neat new things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will it involve like bioceramic hovercrafts flying in, you know, cislunar orbit? No idea. Maybe. Sounds pretty. Somebody else's vision that was in my head at some point and seemed not too bad. Are there giant tree ships holding 
biospheres transmitting between the stars? Maybe. That sounds fun too. Not even vaguely in the zone of what I'm concerned with at the moment. <laughs> I just have to say that one of the things that's this hundred thousand people. So I when I went to grad school, I was dipping studying mediation. And after learning mediation, I was learning dialogue processes and you know, we can get up to a thousand people into a coherent conversation. And then, and, and so I was like, how do we scale it up? Well, what would it be like for a hundred thousand or a million, you know, seven and a half billion, you know, and, and I realized that it, nope, we're going to have to break them into smaller parts. <laughs> but in the last years, there's been some pretty interesting technologies that people have come up with, like some really great, like online platforms for people to be able to talk about what they want to do with the park or whatever, and they can get 10, 30,000 people interacting. Breaking in a part's not necessarily a problem. One, because it gives us kind of more immediate control over the things that are impacting our lives, right? And it's actually, you know, it's bring it home, right? We don't have to talk on a national level about what we're doing in our school next door. But the other aspect of that is because all of these challenges are fractal in nature, the big picture has a bunch of self-similar parts within it. So there's like all the conversations need to happen lots and lots of times anyways. So we can actually break it down in like the smaller parts and it becomes relevant to the larger system, especially if we tweak the algorithms a bit that were kind of our thinking. Very nicely put. We, we, we can get people into what I will call narrow in terms of topic. Right. Uh, in terms of, let's call it space, obviously, virtuality bends the nature of space, but it's still a space right. in terms of time. Um, and we can get, you know, we can get tens of thousands of people to meditate around the world at exactly the same time. And in that context, by the way, they are in coherence. The challenge is the whole of life. The whole mm -hmm. of That's the challenge. Not just meditating, not just chatting, not just talking about a topic, but actually fully living their complete capacity always and making all of their choices from that place literally evolving it and growing it from that place that's the tricky business yes there's like a little metaphor here with artificial intelligence that's coming to mind right that we can have specific artificial intelligence it's way smarter than a human and beat us at chess every time and hmm. And then we could have general artificial intelligence so it can do the same thing as a as our own brain. And then, of course, that quickly skips then to our general artificial super intelligence because they can think as much as a human and they have access to all the information and none of the boundaries of a brain, you know, then they can get super smart. And so, right. So even though we can get like just this weekend, I'm going to be um, participating in a dialogue about what do we do about the county fairgrounds in this very specific city? There's going to be 150 people and they're all going to be having a dialogue together. And mm -hmm. we're using the World Cafe model. And, and But that's those people talking about that topic. That's not the same as that general coherence, right? I'll put a very particular one. They're not yeah. going to talk about what they should be talking about. Even with three people. It can get really tricky. In fact, in some sense, insoluble. It's a three-body problem at the level of three people just agreeing. And by the way, I'm using the word agree here as a term of art on what we should be talking about. <laughs> Is in fact, it's 
it's not insoluble. We solve it all the time, but it it brings forth the actual complexity of, of the problem. Like it's a real, it's a really sticky issue, particularly if you're if it's meaningful, mm-hmm. but, but mysterious, right? If the problem is meaningful, but how do I say, finite and soluble in a non-mysterious fashion. So let's say the classic example here would be something like a very big puzzle. Right. I got a three thousand or call it ten thousand piece puzzle. All right. It's big, big problem, which is called a complicated problem, a very big problem. But in principle, if we're smart enough, we can actually put together a exactly proper structure on how to solve that problem. It's that kind of an epistemological issue, which means our challenge is essentially to, to figure out how to reach that point and then do it. But there are some problems that Either it's, it's, it's unknown, it's just a, an unknown whether that exists, or it's entirely plausible that that doesn't, it isn't part of the problem space, it isn't bounded in that fashion. It, it holds, for example, the simplicity of any problem where human agency changes the nature of the problem, by definition, open, can't close it. We can't, we can't create something that doesn't open it up even further. So the point is, yes, this is this right here, very tricky business, very challenging. Thank you. Yeah, and it brings to mind, I've been just recently making like a series of videos about complexity and wicked problems and just trying to explain, you know, what these are about. And um, yeah, it's a very different thing if there actually is a solution, right? And and I, I talk about this a lot because there's this, we have chronic conflicts in our political world, whether guns or abortion or immigration, they're going to be around forever. We're not going to get, there's not a final answer or whatever. And that's the nature of a wicked problem is that there isn't necessarily one single answer that's going to solve it. We're not going to get to the end. And also every tweak that you make or every response that you make changes the whole system. And, and so with this fairgrounds example, they're going to decide, do they get rid of the fairgrounds or do they keep the fairgrounds? And then if they decide to get rid of it, then they're going to figure out what to replace it with. And then that'll, at least within our time, lifetime will be a finite answer. And they'll yep. be able to be concrete. Part of what we're looking for then is how to be an ongoing, dynamic, collaborative <laughs> relationship. So this is wonderful. I've, I've learned already. Um, so what are you seeing as some of the challenges to doing that? Like, I mean, obviously there's inherent challenges with wicked problems and complex things. Okay. Again, this will be a, a not particularly prioritized list. Great. Certainly not the whole list, <laughs> but here's a few. One, both concepts and institutions like nations and schools are a complete waste of time real trouble, meaning simultaneously, neither can solve anything meaningful in the current moment, and both almost entirely get in the way, and yet almost everybody has a habit of mind, tries to solve problems using those kinds of tools. It's quite uh, wicked. So that's an example, right? So if I want to unwind that, the sort of the meta problem there is something like, how does one become conscious of the implications of what I just said, and then what does it look like? Or how do we go about liberating our capacity for thinking about the world from the habits of mind that do things like import nations and schools as unconscious tools? 
How do we notice where those tools are in fact inappropriate? To what degree are those tools appropriate or useful? And how do we actually begin to develop and innovate tools, institutions, processes, constructs, et cetera, that are in fact actually appropriate? Right? And that last piece is a very sharp edge because it means appropriate both in the context of the real problems we're endeavoring to address and in the context of the monopoly on resources and mindset of the institutional structures that we we're just talking about having to separate from. Right? So it's a, that's a very nice, clean example of that category. I'll give you another one, uh, thinking, the, the problem of thinking. So in the problem of thinking, we have a number of different challenges. One is, for the most part, the developmental environment that we've been put through uh, has as a primary characteristic an enormous reduction in our individual and collective capacity. To, it almost perfectly teaches us not to think. A thing that I called simulated thinking. It, it inculcates a facility and capacity and upregulates the use of that capacity. Simulated thinking both as a way that excludes our attention on thinking and in many ways even abuses our capacity to think. Uh, that's one. Two, for the most part, the concepts that we endeavor to use to think are not very effective. They're poor. It's okay. I mean, the people who invented them were doing their best over long periods of time and in very particular local contexts, which we're very far from. In addition, a, how do I say this right? A, a niche exists for fucking with us. And there are systems, which I've named unconscious egregores, that have been exploiting that niche for a very long time. And so even to the degree to which the concepts that we're using were born healthy and vital, in many cases, we're operating with things that are the perfect inversion of those concepts, which not only confuses us, but separates us from effectiveness and capacity. So we need to simultaneously liberate ourselves from simulated thinking, regenerate a capacity to think, and then very carefully pull concepts in front of us, notice the degree to which they were ever useful at all, dust them off, polish them back up, bring them back into shape, or if necessary, throw them into the fire and build new concepts that are in fact responsive to our real environment. A seriously non-trivial endeavor. Okay, I'll give you a third. The clock is ticking. The actual reality is that we don't have a whole lot of time. This isn't a centuries-long kind of effort, probably not a decades-long kind of effort with high play. We'll probably need to play a game where we buy time to buy time to buy time. It is simultaneously a multi-generational effort and one with immediate intensity and urgency. Right? Both are true. And we are not going to solve the whole problem in a generation. As far as I can tell, very unlikely, even if we begin to collaborate effectively. And there's just a lot of unfucking to be done. Something like you know, 15 to 30,000 years of stuff that's been pumped into our individual and uh, collective unconscious and uh, phys physiology, for that matter. Certainly the structural environment that we happen to live in. And uh, Rome will not be unmade in a day. And... You know, things are, the wheels are coming off the bus as we speak. And so keeping the ship of Thebes waterworthy so that we can undergo the journey is a whole thing, right? So those are three distinct kinds of problems and they're all, they inter interrelate as you might imagine. So there's a decent bite to chew on. Yeah, yeah that's that excellent. 
yeah, we have the structural issues. We have our models of thinking. And then we have the fact that we have urgent, an urgent need to figure it out really quickly. So the, the notion is actually, I think, quite powerful. The, the basic, the big picture is to say evolution right, operates at the level of species, right? Right. Not humans. Right. Ducks, right? Species, duck, homo sapiens. In the context of species, the fact that, that species operate according to different uh, subcomponents is obvious, right? An ant hill, the whole ant hill is a kind of organism, right? Aspens are not individual trees. They're a whole collective organism. Humans have to be made up of lots of discrete, discrete cells that show up as a single phenotypic individual, which is a subunit of the species Homo sapiens, right? Okay. As it turns out, this operates also in the realm of human behaviors, that there are structures that emerge that have species-like characteristics in what we can call culture space. Oftentimes we refer to these as institutions, for example, but they include things like say money, which is not really an institution in its simplest sense, but mm -hmm. broad sense it certainly is. But say an institution like General Motors, right? Or the institution like the public school system or the institution of TikTok, like this, you know, we can slice and dice it all we want. The point is evolution actually operates in that context as well. And these kinds of institutions have a capacity to have a certain sense of self-interest. We use that term, right? There's a, a term that we use, and I'm saying it's real. It's not, it's not just a metaphor that the Department of Defense has a certain self-interest that is not just the self-interest, not just the sum of the self-interest of the individual humans that are kind of collected around it. Right? It's not just the corruption of a given defense contractor or the nobility of a given soldier. It's actually something going on there at the level of the DOD that is a real agent in the world. It's a very unusual intelligence, actually, because it has a, an enormous number of human agents. They're acting kind of like it's ants in its anthill. It's only getting a small fraction of their total agency. So it's like a, an anthill is quite a nice metaphor. And if you poke an anthill, it responds in a particular fashion. It has a capacity to perceive threat to itself and a capacity to respond to threat to itself. So this kind of an object, which I'm just using the term egregore because it seems ready to hand, it isn't too bad. As far as I can tell, is one of the primary agents in our, these days. That most humans are, because of this previous issue, operating according to simulated thinking, are largely operating in as, as the result of short-term incentive landscapes and relatively received habits and constructs, meaning those are the, the embodiment, the actual physical body of an egregore, are incentive landscapes and ideological frameworks, for example. And so to the degree to which a human is making their local choices, more or less on the basis of their local incentive landscapes and some set of prefab constructs that are not necessarily at all theirs and not in the frame of thinking, then they're acting as an agent of an egregore, not as a human in that, in the more fundamental sense. Wow. Oh, wow. Thank you. That's a, an important distinction. I think it's in a lot of different ways. It's very easy to identify like, okay, this is the person causing this problem, all the different conspiracies and different kinds of things that are going on. And I'm like, honestly, I can explain a lot of the things that I see happening in our world just by saying people are following a 
an egregore in a way. Like I'd, I'd, they're following a certain line of thinking. Capitalism is making it beneficial for these people not to care about this. People are, you know, there's a lot of different things that can just be explained by the fact that there's bigger forces at play that are causing us to think in certain ways. So, anyways, I appreciate the distinction. I I want to bring us into a question that's that's kind of arisen for me, but it's also one that, but since we've been talking, um, you mentioned at the beginning about that kind of level of healing. And so we have on institutional changes, we have cultural changes, we have big level things, but then there's also the individual personal capacity and desire to want to be in this best next world and better world or to be in a collaborative space and to want to be in coherence and to want to and then there's the opening to the desire and then there's actually even the capacity anyway so um i want to i'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are about I don't know, the, the challenges and opportunities around like that personal healing or, you know, any of your th thoughts on this topic? Well, uh, the first thing that, that really comes to me is, is something like forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So let me lay out the, I said earlier that the notion of like ordinary human capacity, but let me then lay out ordinary human context. And if your heart sinks upon hearing that, that's a, it may be a very reasonable response. An ordinary human is born into a context where they are actually surrounded by other humans who love them. That's an ordinary human context. And all the different kinds of humans, more or less, they'll have cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and, and many different kinds of friends of different ages. And they'll be taught how to navigate their relationships with other humans in, from the very beginning in a place of deep caring. And their, their physical environment will be something to which they are well-suited and to which their culture is well-adapted. Won't be easy, but perhaps it's better than easy. Easy is not necessarily healthy. And they'll have an enormous, continuous relationship with nature, which is a great teacher, as opposed to, say, machines, which aren't particularly good teachers. And almost nothing in their local environment will be oriented towards things like violating their own sense of integrity or manipulating them because it's not at all of any interest to the group that the individual is destabilized. And a true human group is deeply invested in the full competence, capacity, maturity, and well-being of each individual in a real human group. You have to go back a long way to be talking about real human groups, but it's the baseline from which we emerged. So we're very, 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 very far from that, even in our best circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so we should be in a space of forgiveness. Much of the trouble is how very far away we are from simple contexts that would support us as being just natural humans. And we do our best to respond to that. And much of that's very confusing. I pointed to the notion of integrity. I mean, think about how much of our lives how many signals we get from such an early age that teaches us not to be in integrity with ourselves. And our body tells us, hmm, not good. And big chunks of our environment tell us, 
do it anyway. Or even, no, don't listen to yourself is good. And we get confused and we get addled and we get on the road to addiction. We're addicted like crazy all over the place in every direction. It's quite monstrous and heartbreaking and quite daunting. If you drink deeply of that, it can be quite difficult to even believe there's any possibility of hope. Yeah, I really enjoy how you've explained human context, you know, how the human context will look like and, and how far we are from that. And you mentioned forgiveness, and I actually, uh, I consider forgiveness to be like the core problem, right? Like that are the core, it's not the problem, it's the, the, the lack of forgiveness in our society. So part, of, I think what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, in a world where we're really far off from our natural, like our, our best state, and that we've been off for a long time, in order to bring it back, we have to be able to recognize, well, we're off track. And in order to, to really be able to face that, we have to be able to be able to forgive ourselves for getting off track. Is that the context in which you're talking about forgiveness? Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah. As individuals, for us, we forgive, forgive ourselves and forgive others and say, okay, yeah. we're entering into a space of forgiveness, which by the way, does not mean license to do stupid things, obviously. <laughs> right means, okay, the, the Hawaiian is quite nice. Right? They have the, the ho'opo'opono. It's uh, hmm, more like commitment even than forgiveness. Right? It's okay, we're going to enter into a space of deep forgiveness, but glued to that space, like intrinsic to the space, is even deeper commitment. You've been liberated to actually commit by virtue of forgiveness. It's almost forgiveness as a responsibility. Very powerful. And I think quite appropriate. This goes back to the notion of confusion. Like these things all come together. It's a whole thing. <laughs> you can't take parts of it mm -hmm. and without also taking the responsibility. And of course, proper responsibility. Mm -hmm. many, many people take the responsibility improperly. Right? It's not your responsibility to take on the whole world. It's not how it works. You've got whatever piece is yours and it's probably a pretty small piece because the world's real big. And you know, who knows what it is right now? Maybe it's to, you know, shift some small relationship of addiction into a slightly less dramatic addiction. You know, learn how to, like I said, learn how to just pay attention to the things you care about a little bit better, like, like tiny things. The good news is, okay, we had a concept, anti-rivalrous. All of those are anti-rivalrous. And anti-rivalrous, not just with others, but like it's part of like finding the anti-rivalrousness with ourselves and with our past and then with the, and with our future and with our present. You know? Yeah. yeah. So, the notion of fractal is very helpful there. Yeah. Yeah. Any given every any given individual is of course a society. And any given society is of course made up of individuals. And so the anti-rivalrous. Um, as above, so below, all the way down to the microcosmic limit into the macrocosmic limit. It is a whole, and it is a whole made up of fractal holons. I hate mm -hmm. to terms, but those are the terms that are available. Yeah, and so, thank God for living in these days when we have these terms. I, actually, it, it, it strikes me that we live in a time where we're the first civilization that knows that we could be, we're at the precipice and that civilizations can collapse, and we have all the information that we ever could possibly need about our history and and we actually have all the solutions and it's interesting to see if we'll pull it together it'll definitely be a very interesting story to be yeah 
Yeah, it's. I thought about when that there was like that alignment of like Jupiter and Saturn, the solstice star from like yeah, last year or two years ago. And it's going to happen again in 80 years. And I remember thinking, okay, so 80 years, well, what are pe people watching this star are going to be remembering this happened in 2020. And they're either going to be like, wow, those people really pulled it off. Thank goodness. We're living a pretty good life right now or relatively good. Or they're going to be like, what a bunch of assholes didn't even try to save didn't even pull us back from the brink. You know, we'll know, yeah. we'll, we'll know pretty soon, I think. Well, thank you, Jordan, for your time today and yeah. doing some actual real thinking with me. This has been helpful. Me too. Thank you yeah. for reaching out. Thank you so much for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. I am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to omniwinproject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now and we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.